Welcome back, Richard. It's good to see you. Nice to see you too. Good morning. Good Looking morning. forward to another wonderful day. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the topic we're going to touch on today is not uh, such a wonderful thing. Now, right. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, right? And um, we, we haven't really focused on that uh, as we've been going through the this month, but we're going to talk about we're going to talk about Mental Health Awareness Month in an interesting way, in maybe not an, um, not a direct way, because we are going to talk about um, something that is often associated with mental health, and, and that is you know, violence and aggression and, and especially mass shootings. And we, we've, we've had um, found some very interesting and troubling statistics that we had not realized. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and, and how even though we kind of associate it with mental health issues right away, uh, there may be some other ways to think about some of these um, uh, aggressors, um, think about them in a different way, and maybe look at some other factors that contribute to it. That's right. You almost want to begin, as you introduce the topic, you almost want to begin, well, well, this week's mass shooting, you know, because it seems like there's one every week. Well, actually, much to our surprise, there have been 198 mass shootings so far this year. Mass shooting is four or more victims. Which, which is insane because, of course, we've, we've all heard about the most recent um, in Buffalo. And, and that's right. the, the, the most, uh, the deadliest. That's, that's one the, the deadliest, right. Mm-hmm. The most but, but you say the, the mass shooting of the week. There are actually 10 mass shootings because this year is 19 weeks old. Right. And there's been 198. It boggles my mind because you don't hear about the others. We we all heard about Buffalo and there's been a few others, but we all heard about Buffalo because Buffalo, that's been the deadliest. Uh, There were 11 uh, 11 people were killed and uh, three or four were injured. Um, And that happened in about a week ago, May 14th. Uh, This time is in a grocery store and the victims ranged in age from 20 to 86. So every time we have one of these mass shootings, there seems to be this similar response. There's initial shock. Oh my gosh! And then, and then public officials get up and offer thoughts and prayers. And but then there's three questions. It, it, the first question is who would do something like this? Everybody says who who is the person? Why do they do it? And the final question is: Is there any way to prevent these shootings from occurring? And what we want to talk about today is why they're occurring, and particularly is there any way to prevent them? Right. Um, so in this case. The suspect, uh, I don't think he's just a suspect. I mean, he was, right. he's the person who did it. Um, is a, a young kid, 18 years old. Um, I guess he's old enough to vote now, but he can't buy cigarettes or alcohol. I mean, 18 years old um, is Peyton Gendron. And he had to drive two hours to get there. So it took some effort. Um, but in this case, we do have a motive. Right. You know, yeah. it. He left this document, right? Yeah, and 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 this isn't this isn't novel. I mean, we've had situations in the past where people who have uh, committed, you know, mass violence and mass shootings who've um, who've left some type of manifesto or some type of mm-hmm. writing uh, of support. And so, um, and, and of course, he he had an 180 page document that. Mm-hmm shows uh, racism, um, anti-Semitic uh, beliefs, anti-immigrant beliefs, and, um, you, you know, wanted to, in his sort of desire to drive anyone of non-European descent out of the United States. Right, right. Um, 
it, it just, you know, you, you keep thinking that those days are behind us and, and you realize that they're not getting rid. There is this group in the country and they do want to get rid of immigrants and minorities, anybody of non-European descent. And it's called replacement theory. The, the, the motivation here is called replacement theory. And it is that people are being, people in our country are being led to believe that, um, that the white, white people, I almost said white voters, because it has become a political issue now, but that white people are being replaced by people of color, okay? And, and, and so to prevent that from happening, we have to get rid of the people of color, either by killing them or by frightening them to where they move and go someplace else, okay? Right. So it's called replacement theory. And there's a whole article, if you're interested in replacement theory, um, there, there's, we have one of the articles um, posted, it's from CNN, that explains replacement theory um, which became popular, became more well-known after the Charlottesville riots uh, back in 2016, I think it was in 2016, 2017. Um, and you all remember the Charlottesville riot. And that was the first time that this idea of replacement theory um, gained some uh, popularity um, in the press. Right, and, and with this particular um, shooting, uh, you know, 11 of the victims were African-American. Um, and, 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 and while, you know, we can try to understand replacement theory and all of that, it's really still pretty difficult to understand what turned, you know, Peyton into a killer, you know, what, yeah, yeah. and, and I you think- know, we, know, that, we know why he did it. I mean, it, it's obvious. I mean, he explained very clearly why he did it. He's a believer in replacement theory, but it doesn't explain why this particular 18 year old Mm -hmm. turned into a killer and that that's the, that becomes the issue so you know and and even though we have this 180 page explanation for for what he was doing and, and why he did we, we still um we still don't know what causes someone to think this way what causes someone to believe this way and and even if you think that way and believe that way because there, there are many more people who think and believe that way but they don't turn into shooters. They don't turn into aggressors in that, in that way. Um, I, I think we have to pause just as we're starting this conversation and, and say, you know, there, there's not going to be a, a particular answer that's going to say, this is why people do this yeah. kind of stuff, or this is what, this is why a person can have these beliefs and turn it into such a violent and aggressive act. Mm -hmm. um, we, we don't know why. Yeah. Um, and if we did, it would be great, but, um, but then we would sort of be getting into the situation where we're trying to, we're trying to anticipate and trying to prevent something, which would be great again, but you know, there are so many factors involved that mm -hmm. there's just no algorithm that we can use to ad adequately predict what's going to happen. That's right. Because if you, um, you remember the, um, shootings in the elementary school in Connecticut, Newtown, Connecticut, yeah. you know, you said, well, those were first graders, you know, so that's not critical race. It's not race. It's not replacement theory. But, but again, we have the same question of what, what happened to this person that, and, and I think the essential question is, yes, you can be angry, but what turns a person violent? And, and I think the issue here is when the aggression becomes lethal violence and what what change occurs 
that results in lethal violence. And if we, if we understood that better, we might be able to uh, prevent some of these shootings from occurring. Right. So, so in, in, in 2019, um, Wayne Stevens wrote an article uh, called The Myth of Motive in Mass Shootings. And, right. and, and I think that that really kind of gets to the, to the point. And, and that is, you know, we always want to know why something happens. And so we, right. thus we're looking for a motive, right? Um, and, and so we may know why a particular event happens, like this one in Buffalo. We know why it happened. We know what he was trying to accomplish. But it still doesn't answer the, the critical question of what gets a person to the point where they behave that way. That's and right. that was the point that Jane Stevens was, was trying to get to is that it's great to know the motive, but it doesn't explain the roots of why they happen. That's right. And that's what she, that's what she uh, brought to light in the, in the 2019 article. The 2019 article was written shortly after a mass killing, I think in Australia, um, uh, got into a, several mosques and began killing uh, uh, Muslims in Australia. And, and she was writing in response to that shooting. And there was one in the United States, but one in Australia. And, um, and she said that to, to go after the motive, when, we, when we're trying to look for a motive, she said, that does, that's not going to provide anything. She said, it's the wrong question for the, and, and, and it's going to lead to the wrong response. And she said, what we have to do is get to the roots of why a person become why a person would become or how a person becomes um, becomes a killer becomes a, a, a turns to lethal violence, and as it turns out, she based she based her article on a study that was reported that same year by two criminologists. Um, one 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 is Jillian Peterson, uh, who was uh, teaching at Hamline University, and James Densley who was an associate professor at Metropolitan State University. And what they did is they studied 160 mass shootings that occurred in the United States since 1966. So, so their article was published in 2019. There's 160 mass uh, shootings. And they, um, we posted their, uh, their article um, in the show notes. And what they found was that the shooters, and, and this is interesting because when we do, um, when when we report, and we've reported on it before, the profile, you know, the FBI profiling, it's always a white male between the ages of 18 and 25. And so you have this sort of composite. But these two looked, took a much deeper look into it and found that um, there were a number of, of uh, factors that, um, that were common to the mass school shooters. They, they focused on mass school shooters. And of course, as you might expect, a, a large number um, of the mass shooters have, were, had high risk factors for violence, of course. Right. But then this uh, the other data begin to fill in this picture. Right, yeah, so interestingly, uh, 77% had mental health concerns. Right. Now, they weren't mentally ill, but they weren't mentally healthy. Right? Exactly. They had mental health concerns. And, and a lot of times people with mental health concerns, um, you, you know, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, there was something going on with them, but I'm not wasn't sure what because um, they so they don't necessarily seek treatment. They're not off, typically offered treatment, right. um, but there were some mental health concerns. Right. So, you know, we, and we've talked about that many times before that 
Um, this is not a mental, it's not really a mental health issue. You're not going to find the answer in the diagnostic and statistical manual. You're not going to see those kinds of very clear symptoms because in fact, most people with mental illness, they're more likely to become victims of crime than the perpetrators of crime. So right. it's not a mental illness issue, but it is a mental health issue. Right. Okay. And right. in this case, 77% had mental health issues. And, and, and that should you know, that shouldn't be a, aha, we figured something out because clearly if a person is going to act in this way, there's something wrong with the way that they think, right? Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. That that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean mental illness. It doesn't necessarily mean that the person has schizophrenia or bipolar Mm -hmm. disorder or depression or ADHD or anything like that. It just means that there's something wrong with the way that they think and process and and Mm -hmm. view the world. Um, that's a mental health issue, not a necessarily a mental illness issue, but a mental health issue. Exactly. Um, and so the, the last one is that 80%, and I mentioned this, and you'll see why later on, 80% were suicidal. Right. Okay? And, and um, in fact, a little over half did kill themselves. Uh, 15% were killed by the police. 30% were apprehended. But there is a high rate of self-destructive behavior, suicidal behavior among the shooters. Okay. So this gives us another much better look at uh, some of the common features in the, uh, at least in the school shooters, all right? Well then, Jane Stevens, who published the article in 2019, after the Buffalo shooting, she published a sort of resurrected the 2019 article. And, And this one was entitled to prevent mass shootings, don't bother with motive instead Let's do a forensic ACES, A-C-E-S, investigation. And so, so ACES, and we want to talk a little bit about ACES, okay, because what she does in this article is she said there's plenty of evidence now to say that the roots, the path from an innocent child to a distressed mur- murderer has already been laid out. That path has been explained in a study, in a joint study done by, this, done by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Kaiser Permanente Clinic in San Diego. Um, and this study is called the Adverse Child Experiences Study, ACEs. And it's something that's been around for a while, but, but many people don't really know about it. In fact, in 2012, she wrote an article that said the, the most important study you've never heard of. Um, and so, so many people have never heard about it. So we thought, well, let's, let's take a little uh, closer look at the ACEs study in relationship to, um, to this kind of um, mass, uh, mass shootings. Right. And, and we've talked about ACEs before. Um, mm-hmm. and, and because, so we're talking about adverse childhood experiences, and this is, um, these could be anything um, there, there are 10 primary ones that they talk about that they right. evaluate, but it's basically looking at what type of experiences a, a person has during their childhood and, and what type of health related physical health and mental health related right. issues that could come later in adulthood. Right. And this study began a long time ago. This is why in 2012, she could write, you know, the study right. that nobody that you never heard of right. because it started in like the eighties. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, it did. 90s, it was it was primarily um, what you would call a retrospective study. So what they what it, what um, what they this group did is they had all these adults and they were looking at 
these these health related problems, mostly uh, weight related issues, obesity, right. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so they they started getting history, and and they started asking about what was their childhood like, and they they started putting together this this profile, if you will, of people who experience these really negative things. And it could be, you know, a parent going to jail, um, uh, parental divorce, uh, parental substance abuse, domestic violence, um, lots of different, there's, uh, again, about 10 different areas, uh, of course, in being victims of physical, sexual, or or, uh, emotional neglect Mm -hmm. or abuse as well. Um, But when a person experiences some of these as a child, the, the risk of adverse health related issues as an adult significantly yeah. increase. And the right. more you have, the greater the risk. Um, and it's correlational. It's not, yeah. it's right. not, that. so that's going to be something we're going to repeat that right. just because you have a high ACEs score doesn't mean that you're going to have these issues because right. you have to bring resilient stuff involved. Right. Mm-hmm. But the, the risk is there um, from a correlational perspective. Right. Yeah. The, the ACEs study, which is a, which is really an important study. I mean, it, it was groundbreaking. It, it was a game changer. It goes back to 1985 with um, the guy who started it was Dr. Vincent Felitti. And he happened, he was the chair of, uh, of Kaiser Permanente's Department of Preventive Medicine. And um, he couldn't figure out, he, he was, he was doing, he was doing an obesity program, an obesity treatment program. Um, you could you could get into the study if you were 30 pounds overweight, but what he was interested in was people who were 100 or 200 or 300 pounds overweight. So this is uh, real um, co- uh, morbidity. Um, they were morbidly obese, okay, and, and were having health problems because of their obesity. And it was quite by accident because what he did is he couldn't figure out why people would, they'd sign up for the program, they would be successful in losing weight, and then suddenly they would drop out. And he couldn't, he was trying to figure out why were they dropping out, especially when they were successful. So he decided to um, interview them individually. Mm -hmm. And some of the questions he had were, because he thought his assumption was people gradually gained weight over time. So you gain 10 pounds a year for 20 years and that's your 200 pounds heavier. And that was his assumption, which is a reasonable assumption. So then he said, well, okay. So he asked these questions. He said, how much did you weigh when you were born? How much did you weigh when you were in first grade? How much did you weigh in high school? And how much did you weigh when you got married? So he's trying to track this over time. And one of the questions and it's a standard question that we ask in clinical interviews is how old were you when you became sexually active, right? So one day he's interviewing this woman and he mistakenly asks her, how much did you weigh when you became sexually active? And she said, 40 pounds. <laughs> that stopped him in his tracks. And when he went back, as it turns out, of course, she was being sexually abused as a child when she weighed 40 pounds. And he eventually learned that 286 of people he interviewed most had been sexually abused. So it was an accidental question. <laughs> it was an accidental question that opened the door right. to this idea that something happens during childhood that affects you later on. And right. one of the women he interviewed um, she had been raped at age 23 
And the following year, she gained 103 pounds. So this changed his perspective. He said, oh, this is a rapid, rapid weight gain that happened in a year. It didn't happen slowly over time. And when he asked her that question, she thanked him for asking that question. And, and then she said, afterwards, she said, overweight is overlooked. And that's the way I need to be. So gaining weight was a protective factor for her. So being overweight was a solution that fixed a problem that they had, okay? And so this is where, this this was the change that suddenly he realized that being overweight was a solution to a a much larger, much deeper problem. Right, so so now, as you mentioned, you know, his sample was pretty small, just a, a couple of hundred to 286 or so people um, that, that were found to have had these childhood right. experiences. And so he, that's when he started joining forces with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, and um, working with an epidemiologist there. And, right. and they identified, again, sort of uh, these 10, um, 10 types of adverse childhood experiences that seem right. to be related to this later adult health. And right. uh, there, were, there were the three types of abuse, the, the sexual, verbal, and physical abuse, right. um, five types of family dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So if again, if a parent's mentally ill or they have alcohol or substance abuse problems, if a mother has been um, the victim of domestic violence, if a family member has been incarcerated, or mm-hmm. if a, um, a family member has been lost, like if they lost a parent through um, abandonment or divorce or something like that, mm-hmm. that gets us eight. And then the last two are, of course, emotional and physical neglect. Right. So, um, so there's five things that can happen directly to the child, the mm-hmm. three types of abuse and the two types of neglect. And then there's five things that could be part of the family um, mm-hmm. that sort of affect the child indirectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they interviewed a lot of people, like 17,000 people. Right. Who, who were part of the Kaiser Permanente system. They were right. patients in the system. And because what happened to Felitti when he first started presenting his results of several hundred patients, other professionals were saying, well, this really doesn't tell us very much. This is your sample, which is very small. And so that's when he joined forces with CDC. CDC said, well, no, if we join together, uh, we can do a much larger study. And so the, the CDC, the epidemiologist at CDC did a lit search and said, okay, here these seem to be the 10 factors that are related. And so they took those 10 issues and went out to California and they began interviewing uh, these 17,000 pay. They, I think they, they initially interviewed 26,000 and of the 26,000, a little over 17,000 agreed to participate. Now you have a large sample size, okay? Yeah. And they learned very quickly that, that a person's score in this one to 10 um, uh, system was linked to later health addiction and mental health problems. Right. And so the higher your score, what surprised me, and I remember when I first read about this, is that even a score of four mm-hmm. is related to poor health outcomes. In fact, four is often used as sort of a cut score. That's the cutoff. If you, if you scored less than one, you know, zero, one, two, or three, um, it's like, okay, there's some risk. We'll, we'll keep an right. eye. If it's four or higher, then the concern really starts to increase that, that you're going to have these um, poor health outcomes, higher risk for addictions, higher risk for mental health problems. But then just two more, six. Um, yeah. If a person has six or more um, uh, points on the on the ACEs score, 
there's a risk, again, this is correlational data, but the risk, there's a risk for a shortened lifespan of, of up to 20 years. So we're talking about pretty significant influence here. That's astonishing that, that adding two more risk factors, you know, if, if you're, if you're a child of divorce, okay. If you have a single risk factor, that's more than half the population right there. One, right. More than half the population is going to automatically have one because of that. Right. But one probably isn't going to do much damage. Okay. But when they start to accumulate is when you start to have problems. And, and as you say, going from four to six is an enormous change. Right. Um, and so, and what their research did is, uh, so, so that was the original study. And since then, there have been other parallel uh, studies that have been done. And one of them, and this is when I first heard about this, mm-hmm was done by a pediatrician in San Francisco by the name of Nadine Burke Harris, who went on to do her own research mm-hmm. in um, the effects in children. And what she said is, is what she told us, uh, because this again was, was uh, several years ago, was that the fight or flight response, um, that when you're, when you're um, frightened, when you're threatened, um, your body produces um, adrenaline and cortisol. And, and, and that's exactly what's supposed to happen. But that's supposed to enter the body and exit the body fairly quickly. When you are exposed to threats on a long-term basis, mm-hmm. uh, she said, as she put it, if you're being chased by a bear, um, you're, you're, you go into fight or flight, you produce adrenaline and cortisol, but then as soon as you escape, then then the adrenaline and the cortisol go back to normal, they disappear. And what she said very appropriately, I think she said, but the problem is when the bear comes home every night from the bar, okay? Meaning that that a parent comes home drunk. And if you're faced with that every day, she said, now you're getting into significant changes. And she dubbed this toxic stress. And toxic stress is when a child experiences ongoing encounters they'll suffer damage to the structure and function of their brain. And, right. And, and this, this is where, this is where that, that, you know, we often talk about you, uh, every kid needs that one adult, right? It could be a, a teacher. It could be a, a coach. It could be anything. Um, because what, what she says is that, as you said, you know, a child experiencing ongoing encounters, you know, causes this toxic stress, mm-hmm. But when they and when they don't have a positive intervention to, that helps the child, if they don't have a positive outlet, a positive experience um, to to sort of buffer the 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 effects of the that toxic stress, that yeah, they're going to experience damage to the structure and function of the brain. It, there's, right. just no, there's just no way around that. Right. And what she discovered with children is that in her case, a, a, a patient, uh, a score of four or more, if they have four or more categories of risk, they are 32 times um, as their behavior, learning and behavior problems are 32 times as high as kids who have none. And what they, what she discovered was they have this enormous increase in learning and behavior problems among these kids who have a score, an ACE score of four or more, mm-hmm. right? right. And, and so the, com, these two discoveries, the original ACEs study that associated adverse childhood experiences with later adult health problems 
And now you have Harris's study of toxic stress and the effects of toxic stress on children's brain. They combine um, to, um, to show that, um, that there's evidence now that healthy people lead healthy lives and aren't tempted to harm themselves. Healthy people have few or no adverse childhood experiences, and they have many positive childhood experiences like nurturing parents, a safe environment. If those things are lacking, a different picture emerges. And the picture that emerges is you have these brain changes that result in aggression and anger and somehow this need to hurt themselves and others. And what happens is they become vulnerable teenagers, needy teenagers who, who are susceptible to and who are easily groomed and manipulated with these sort of conspiracy theories like replacement theory and other, other sort of, you know, you have to take action and you're being threatened and um, you need to do something about it. Right. And, and so, and so when we, as we combine all of these things and kind of get back to our original mm-hmm. um, topic, you know, we see that many of these individuals who, who engage in these violent acts, these, these mass shootings and things like that, um, you know, maybe a better thing for us to look at is not necessarily a motive, but let's look at their ACEs scores. Let's look at, let's right. look at some of that history. Again, the idea of trying to identify a way to prevent it, um, it you know, that kind of gets to sort of um, procedural and, and, and things that we need to be doing at schools and we need to be doing in other places where we need to recognize students who are at risk for, you know, or experiencing mental health problems, um, who are stressed. We're overwhelmed in the schools. And so it's really difficult to, you can see a student who may be a little bit troubled um, or we uh, students who we know are having really challenging problems at home. And sometimes we do things about that and sometimes we don't. Um, mm-hmm. and, and perhaps the things that we need to do in schools is to develop better strategies for addressing those kinds of issues and seeking and finding and identifying those students and that's doing something it. about it. That's right. I mean, when, when you talk about reducing or preventing this kind of violence, you know, you can make guns less available. The, people call about, people always talk about gun control, okay? We know all the problems associated with that. Another thing is to control hate speech that appears on social media. And that, that's something being discussed today about does a person have a right or should we allow people just to post whatever they want on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram? Um, and now we have an election cycle coming up and there's going to be a lot of fear mongering coming from social media about, you know, that we have to be careful about. And people will talk about immigration and right. LGBT and all these other divisive issues that that they want to create fear in people. We need to be careful about how we digest that. But a better solution, as you're suggesting, is let's use the knowledge that we've gained from these ACEs study, from the ACEs study. And we've had it since 1995. Um, and so let's, let's take this knowledge and let's use that because that may be a, a better, more effective way of preventing some of these things. What we do know is that there are certain things that don't work. For example, right. lockdown drills. <laughs> and it was pointed out, they said, if in school shootings, the shooter is, is a student or former student at the school. 
So if you have a lockdown drill, you're teaching that shooter where, where the vulnerabilities are. Right. Okay. So, so lockdown drills are probably not any good suspension, expulsion, having criminal charges probably make it worse because now you're turning this kid who's already a victim, you're further victimizing him. Mm -hmm. Um, And the threat of the death penalty, that's what I said later or earlier about the threat of punishment. Um, There are political figures who have said, well, let's, let's just execute them uh, or the fear of execution, but that doesn't work because they're suicidal to begin with. Okay. So fear, fear, death is, isn't an issue for them. They don't care because they plan to die anyway. Absolutely. And, and when we think about things that, that could potentially work, um, right. you know, when a person's making a threat, I, I think that there's two groups that have to really be involved, parents and teachers, you know, mm-hmm. because, again, we're talking about trying to identify things early. Mm-hmm. Um, but parents and teachers, parents need to be able to identify signs that suggest that your, your child is in need of, of some kind of help. So if a kid is making threats, if they are looking up, you know, scary, dangerous, destructive types of things on the Internet, um, teachers, of course, should be doing the same. If they start to recognize these things, they should see that as a plea for help, not not as a, oh, my gosh, you you know, we need to punish, but we need to see what's going on so that we can we can help. Um, And again, in schools, we need to do a better job of recognizing what students are at risk, what students and individuals may be in crisis, and then intervene before there's a crisis. Right. Not, not, to, not to punish. That's what I always worry about when we try to predict who's going to engage in some of these things is oftentimes what we're talking about is wanting to, to give them consequences before they act. Right. Um, and we're not talking about that. We, we, we are talking about these individuals need help. They need, they need support. They need therapy. They need treatment um, to help overcome some of the challenges that's leading them down that path that, that could be dangerous and destructive. That's right. And that's what that's what Peterson and Densley uh, from their work um, said, that these threats should be seen as a plea for help, not not as, you know, not a reason to be expelled. We should we should recognize them as saying, you know, it's like kids who cut. Now now we see that as a plea for help. Um, so is it, that's, that's the first thing. And, and school personnel have to be trained to recognize these as a plea for help. They have to, we have to recognize the signs that a student is in crisis. And this is what, when you talk about social emotional learning, this is part of social emotional learning. So rather than throwing that out and saying, we shouldn't be doing that in schools. No, no, we have to be doing that in schools because that's where we're going to recognize these signs. Right. And so this shifts everything from protection really to prevention. We're trying, we're trying to prevent things from happening by mm-hmm. identifying and treating and intervening earlier. Right. Um, and, and then the same thing with, you know, shifting, as you said a minute ago with, um, you know, lockdown drills and things like that, we, we need to shift from this need for physical security right. to looking at mental health and mental well-being. That's right. Uh, we, we put scanners in schools. We put all those locking doors and putting cameras up and everything to create physical security. Kids are still being killed. I mean, all over the, you know, in schools and elsewhere. So we have to, we have to make this shift from physical security to mental well-being. And again, 
that's a very different concept than mental illness. And we have to move away from mental illness, talk about mental well-being. Right. And, and, and we talked a lot about school and kids and, and addressing issues at that level. Mm-hmm. You know, the Buffalo shooting, of course, he was an 18 year old, but his victims were adults. Right. And so but we need to so we need to be doing the same thing at the at the adult level, if you will, um, where, you know, employers and, and um, health care um, for mental health concerns and issues are, are available to people too. You know, a lot of, um, a lot of companies have EAPs and things like that so that a person can get, you know, mental health therapy, um, you know, at least short term to explore any issues that they may be developing or maybe experiencing. And I think that we need to, those kinds of issues need to be, and, and services need to be expanded so that people can get the support that they need. If they're starting to have these kinds of issues, these kinds of thoughts, somebody mm-hmm. can recognize that and say, hey, you, it would be great if you went and talked to somebody. Not as a, again, not as a punitive, not as a punishment or a consequence to anything, but just to help them um, be healthy. Right, right. And, and, and we have to, you know, we live, everybody's talking now about this toxic political environment that we live in. And that, that adds to it as well. Sure. Um, because people talk about, you know, building walls and keeping people out and throwing people out, not letting people in. And you create enemies, you know, you create that divisiveness that feeds this sort of uh, mentality that I have to take action because people, some people are going to take action right. uh, because of their backgrounds. And That's so we need to be careful about, about, um, about those kinds of divisive, that kind of divisive rhetoric. Because if you take a kid who, um, you know, has access to guns and, and he hears his parents um, talking about immigrants or people of color, right. I mean, then you start to get these eight, then you start, that score starts to go up, you know? Um, and so you have to be careful about that. Absolutely. So tough topic, but again, um, 198 already this year, that's, that's, Unbelievable. We're not even. I was stunned by that. Yeah, I had no idea. You know, because you keep saying, "Well, what's the shooting of the week?" No, what are the ten shootings this week? Which is completely, it truly is incomprehensible. Absolutely. Well, we'll keep an eye on it, and we'll um, stay on top of it anytime there's new information or new um, new ideas or new thoughts out there. So, all right. Well, that's it for today. If you want to, hey, if you want to get it done in May, have one more week. That's it. One more week. Better hurry. Yeah. When is uh, Memorial Day? Next, uh, a week from tomorrow. Is it celebrated on a Monday? Next Monday? It is. Isn't it, isn't it always celebrated on Monday? I think so, but it seems like it's rushing. So three-day weekend next weekend. Yes. Okay. So it is. All right. Until, until then, until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and forget to be afraid. <laughs>